You're listening to The Globalist, first broadcast on the 20th of December 2023 on Monocle Radio. The Globalist, in association with UBS. Live from London, this is The Globalist with me, Emma Nelson. A very warm welcome to today's programme coming up as trade routes are disturbed and shipping disrupted, a multinational naval task force is sent to patrol the Red Sea to prevent attacks by Houthi rebels. This is an international problem and it deserves an international uh, response. The Houthis say it won't stop them. Also ahead, the Ukrainian president denies his country is starting to lose against Russia. We'll go over Volodymyr Zelensky's end-of-year press conference where he faces some tough questions. We'll hear an update on Colorado's Supreme Court removing Donald Trump from the 2024 presidential ballot. And our paper reviewer, Paul Rhodes, has joined me in the studio to tell us what he spotted. Good morning, Paul. What's on the list? Good morning. We're going to talk about how Narendra Modi has responded to claims... Um, from the U.S. about uh, allegations of an Indian assassination on American soil, um, New York's plan to consider reparations for descendants of slaves, and about a French couple who lost a court case over an African mask worth millions of euros. Can't wait. Plus the business news, and we'll hear from Marcus Hippie. He's back in the studio to tell us how Finns celebrate Christmas. That's all ahead on The Globalist, live from London. First, a quick look at what else is happening in today's news. France's parliament has passed legislation tightening the country's immigration laws. Experts in Iceland say a volcanic explosion not far from the capital Reykjavik has been spewing out more lava than recent eruptions on the peninsula. And a group of South Korean students is suing the country's government after its infamous national admissions exam ended 90 seconds early. Stay tuned to Monocle Radio throughout the day for more on these stories. But first, Yemen-based Houthi rebels say not even an international naval task force can stop their attacks on Israeli-linked ships in the Red Sea. A fleet involving vessels from the likes of Britain, Bahrain, Canada, France, Italy, the Netherlands, Norway, the Seychelles and Spain will conduct joint patrols in the southern Red Sea and the Gulf of Aden. But the Houthi rebels say they will carry on anyway, possibly with an operation every 12 hours. Well, I'm joined now by Iona Craig, a journalist who specialises in the Arabian Peninsula a very good morning to you, Iona. Good morning. Um, just recap for us what's been happening in the Red Sea for the last couple of weeks. Um, well, it's been actually more than a month this has been going on for now. So the Houthis initially decided to target Israeli link vessels, anything that was owned or partly owned by Israel. Then the goalposts moved and they decided to target vessels, they said, that were bound for Israel, that were due to dock in Israeli ports. Um, but now, over, certainly over the last few days, it's become much more sporadic and totally unpredictable of what vessels they're going to target because they've been targeting pretty much anything and everything that they choose to. And just to think that the manner in which they do this, I mean, this is generally done by drones launched from uh, rebel-controlled areas of Yemen. Uh, yes, not just drones. They've used cruise missiles, ballistic missiles. It's the first time a non-state actor has used anti-ship ballistic missiles. Uh, they've also carried out uh, a, a 
quite a sophisticated hijacking of a ship last month. They landed a helicopter on the deck and then uh, took charge of it. And that uh, vessel, along with its crew, is now still in Houthi in a Houthi-controlled port on the on the west coast of Yemen. So yes, it's been a range of of things. Um, and the U.S. has targeted. They said more than a hundred uh, attacks by drones and missiles. Um, that they've had to counter in that period. Uh, France has also been involved, and Britain last week also used a missile to take down a Houthi drone. And this is not just Israeli vessels. I mean, you, you, you mentioned a moment ago they're target, targeting absolutely everybody, but the, the the purpose of this is what? To, to force Israel to stop its military operations in Gaza? Yes, absolutely. I mean, this has been the stated aim by the Houthis. Um, they've kind of even pushed on that. They initially said that it was about um, that, that it would keep going until Gaza received the medical and food aid that it needed. And now they said they will keep going as long as Israel's war on Gaza keeps going. Um, so, yes, it's very much linked to that. The Houthis have never been shy about their anti-Israeli and anti-Western sentiment. It's part of their slogan. It's what's written on their flag. So, Yes, as part of the kind of axis of resistance that is led by Iran, this has been, you know, one of the sort of major points for the Houthis is now sort of taking on the Palestinian cause, which has proved very popular in the region and even in Yemen. Amongst the Yemenis that have been fighting the Houthis in a civil war since 2014, many of them have now turned around and supporting the Houthis in this action. Um Tell us a little bit about this International Naval Task Force that was announced a couple of days ago. The, the fact is, is that there are players from so many nations um, which are conducting joint patrols in the Southern Red Sea. It, it feels as if vessels from absolutely everywhere are on their way to the region. Um, well, yes and no. There are some notable absentees from the, the, the list of members of that coalition, although um, it has come out from Washington that there are many people or nations that don't want to be listed um, because they don't want to be seen as aligning with with a, a sort of uh, anti-Palestinian, you know, an anti-Palestinian fight or what might be perceived as that. So yes, you have got a lot of nations involved, but nobody really knows what's going to happen, how this is going to be, how they're going to be used, these warships in, in the area, how they're going to help vessels going through the Red Sea. So at the moment, the shipping is still all turning south and heading away from the Red Sea. Um, you've now got sort of 25% of all containers shipped in the world now taking the long way round, around the south of Africa, around the Cape of Good Hope, uh, but to avoid the Suez Canal and therefore avoid this, this route um, through the Red Sea that's along Yemen's coastline. Just explain a little bit more about how much disruption you see with all this diversion via the Cape of Good Hope. Because the amount of the amount of trade that goes through uh, the Red Sea on on the way to the Suez Canal is 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 huge, isn't it? Goods and more importantly, oil. Yeah, I think the shipping industry is is really nervous and is jumping up and down a lot about this. I you know people will remember the incident with the Ever Given in March 2021, the vessel that famously got stuck in the Suez Canal and shut the Suez Canal down for for a week. This is going to last a lot longer than a week. And I think the shipping industry is already saying it's going to be much worse than the ever given. And, you know, we we're, we're probably still remember how that disrupted international supply lines and um, the supply chain for so long. And this is going to have uh, a similar effect, if, if not worse effect. You've got vessels that are now going to be at sea for a week to 10 days longer than they other, otherwise would have been. 
costing uh, around a million dollars per vessel to take that, that extra journey of more than 3,000 miles. So, yeah, it's going to have a huge effect on that. That's going to be passed on that cost to um, to, to buyers and, and, and you and I who are going out to buy anything that's coming from the Far East. It's a masterstroke, isn't it? Because given the fact that you can pressurise governments, but they will only go so far. However, if you pressurise the private sector and you make it felt or you, you create an effect felt by everybody, especially in the run up to Christmas, you are really going to create a, a new kind of pressure here, aren't you? Um, yes, the, the the private companies, the shipping companies, have have slightly got the the U.S. Um, military and navy over a barrel here, because they announced these diversions and suspensions of travel through the Red Sea last week, and even vessels that were contracted by the Department of Defense that are integral to the U.S. military, who hold you know who fly under American flags, said they would not sail through the Red Sea. Um, even though that they would be afforded protection if they're under American flagging. Um, so, yes, they, they forced the hand of the U.S. really on this. You know, um, some people have said there are echoes of the kind of East India Company about this because, in effect, you've got private shipping companies forcing the foreign policy of America as a result of all of this. What? How long is this? How long are the Houthis able to sustain this? Because they seem to be able to send drones and missiles in huge numbers into the Red Sea, and one wonders where they are able to sort of source this stockpile from. Um, well, that's no secret, really. That all comes from Iran. Iran has um, helped with the Houthis um, so much militarily; they wouldn't be able to do any of this. The drones. The missiles, all of that comes from Iran. Iran has helped them manufacture some of these um, at home in Yemen. Otherwise, parts uh, and ballistic missiles are smuggled through to the Houthis. So, um, yes, a lot will depend on that supply chain, really, for the Houthis and how long they can keep that up. Um, But they've had no problems with it over the last nine years, really, in Yemen. And it's only really extended their arsenal, the support from Iran, over the last decade. Um, so, yeah, I, I think, you know, the Houthis are, have certainly indicated that they're going to keep this up um, for as long as, as I say, Israel keeps up their war on Gaza. And unless anybody can curtail that, that supply line and that connection between Iran and the Houthis, it seems unlikely they're, they're going to stop for, you know, supply chain issues on their own end. So the supply t- supply chain issues are, are perfectly secure for the Houthis to continue this, this assault. You, we've also talked about the, the hard power, the presence of this international naval fleet. But what about diplomacy? Because Saudi Arabia has been um, talking with the Houthis to try to extend the ceasefire in the in in the in the war in uh, in the in the civil war in Yemen. Who will be the voice that comes and and calms everything down and and stops the Houthis? Or have the Houthis the Houthis just realised they have an opportunity like no other here? Um, I think the latter very much so. The Houthis do see that. They have very little loot to lose in all of this. Yes, Saudi Arabia has been the one that has asked the US to show restraint in how they react to the Houthis in these attacks in the Red Sea. And the main reason for that is that, as you mentioned, the, the Saudis have been negotiating a political deal to extract themselves from Yemen with the Houthis. And they've been the closest to that that they ever have been since they started this this intervention back in 2015. And they were extremely close to signing a political deal back in October. And when the Hamas attacks happened on October 7th, that kind of paused the signing of this deal. 
and they're really nervous that this whole these whole incidents in the Red Sea is going to scupper that deal completely. So they're very keen to get that deal pushed through and signed as soon as possible. Because, but of course, there isn't the same urgency for the Houthis. They may decide that they can walk away from this with very little consequences from that deal with Saudi Arabia. The ones who may be able to calm the Houthis down, who may be able to act as negotiator, negotiators, are Oman. They've done it a lot during the course of the conflict in Yemen, and they are, you know, certainly the sort of effectively the Switzerland of the region when it's come to the conflict between the Houthis and Saudi Arabia. So I'm sure at the moment there will be a lot of backdoor diplomacy going on, trying to get the Houthis to sort of wind back on on their assaults in the Red Sea. But ultimately. Really, the, the the resolution to all this would be a ceasefire in Gaza, and I think this will add pressure to the U.S. to again then put pressure on Israel to um, to have a ceasefire in Gaza to to end not only what the, the, the horrors of what's going on in Gaza, but to stop these attacks in the Red Sea as well. Anna Craig, thank you as ever for joining us on Monocle Radio. in Kyiv, 7.13 here in London. Now, Ukraine's president, Volodymyr Zelensky, has rejected the suggestion that his country could be starting to lose the war against Russia. At an end-of-year news conference in Kyiv, he admitted Ukraine faced challenges, but he said he was confident his allies would not let his country down. Well, I'm joined by Mark Galeotti, who's a political analyst and author of Putin's Wars from Chechnya to Ukraine, and by the Ukrainian journalist Natalia Gumenyuk, who joins us on the line from Kyiv. A very good morning to you both. Morning. Morning. Uh, Mark, let me just begin with you. Uh, One of the key roles of Volodymyr Zelensky as a leader is to strike a defiant and positive tone. Did he? I mean, he did up to a point. He actually is in a very difficult position because on the one hand, he absolutely has to reassure both Ukrainians and Ukraine's backers that the war will continue and that they are not down the cast. But on the other hand, he also has to, in effect, try and leverage the West, particularly in, in the light of the fact that both the European Union and the United States currently have aid packages that are sort of held up in rank, internal wranglings. So he basically he also has to play on play on them and say, basically, you know, if you don't step up, then terrible things will happen. So, you know, it's a difficult balance, but he, he did it characteristically well. And from the point of view of, of the Ukrainians, Natalia, what was their reaction to this press conference yesterday? Um, I watched all the press conferences and participated in many. It's interesting that um, yesterday, I think Zelensky was the most calm and the confident. I'm speaking even about the pre-war years because usually it was usually in Ukraine a fight with the Ukrainian journalists who like trying to explain all the things which are wrong in the country and then he would be in the defensive mode. This was really a lot about how to win this war, how what to do if there won't be, uh, you know, American support any longer, and there would be way less American and Western support in the next year. So it was exactly what Mark said, this kind of balance saying like, no, things are not that bad. Every day in Ukraine is a victory. Every day the uh, light is there. The city are staying intact. It's actually the work of many, many people. There was no major success of Russia um, in um, since the whole year. So it's not really about the Ukrainian failure in the counteroffense, but really Russia has 
gain nothing this year as well. So he still tried to balance. It's definitely harder. And um, it's kind of clear that a bit politics in Ukraine back to its pre-war normal. Those who didn't like Zelensky doesn't like him. Those who kind of is neutral more or less find the reasons in what he says. And he does have his, uh, the people who are sympathetic to what the government does. So it's, uh, I won't say mixed, it's not controversial, but it's really, you know, according to the usual camps we used to have before. And Mark, we just heard, a, you know, Natalia raise one of the key question, key issues here, which, which means that the winter that the Ukrainians and in, in particular Volodymyr Zelensky face, which is the the twofold challenges, which is firstly the the fact that he needs to leverage the West to unblock the desperately needed funds and armaments to 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 resist the the Russians, but also that expected counteroffensive in the summer did not produce the gains that it that was required did it certainly not the gains that were hoped i mean i think you know we we have to 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 recognize facts and say it it was a a disappointing outcome for for ukraine but as natalia has has mentioned i mean it hasn't on the other hand, left the Ukrainians in a worse position. I think very much the question is now obviously looking ahead. I mean, I, I don't think anyone expects anything particularly dramatic to happen over the winter, particularly because Russian attempts to disrupt Ukrainian critical national infrastructure, in other words, to basically cut off the power at the height of winter, don't look successful. Ukrainian air defences are increasingly effective in basically sort of cutting out of the sky all the various drones and missiles that the Russians send. So it's about looking ahead. And here we, we begin to see the contours of some of the debates. I mean, there's there's this call for the, the mobilization of up to a half a million more soldiers, which would be quite quite a dramatic impact, and which at the moment President Zelensky is saying that you know, we're still considering. There's some kind of hints of political troubles between Zelensky and the commander-in-chief, General Zaluzhny. And I felt that Zelensky gave a rather sort of lukewarm endorsement. More and I said, well, we, we, we have a working relationship, um, which is a bit less than he, he is a great commander. Um, so again, I, th- I think it is this question of the whole issue of what is 2024 going to be? Is it going to be a, re- a sort of full-scale, renewed counteroffensive? Or is it, as increasingly I think the Americans in particular are urging, is it a more or less a, a building year? And so that 2025 is going to be the sort of the, the crucial year on the battlefield. But that's, of course, expecting Ukrainians to actually have to swallow the fact that they've, they've got at least another couple of years of war. So I think it's now that people are starting to look forward to what happens in the spring more than anything else. And Natalia, there is a... the But Zelensky mentioned plans to mobilise a further half a million people. What's been the reaction to that? In fact, it's there is a discrepancy between, you know, like the the questions from the best journalists and Ukrainians. And um, what is interesting that the Western journalists were also trying, like, Ukraine is failing, it doesn't work. So are you thinking about, you know, giving up that I would express the sentiment in this way, generalized, and Zelensky would say, like, no, we actually not, maybe we are not losing, but the Russia is not winning and we are in better shape than we were a year ago. And this winter, we are more stable than a year ago because the winter last year was way more horrible. We had less air defense and actually now we are more confident in themselves the ukrainian sentiment from the ukrainian journalists and society is like kind of opposite 
they are pushing the, the, the country to say, like, can you be more proactive in military way? Can you move the economy to the military? Can, you, can Ukraine draft more people, more soldiers? Can we fight more efficiently? And Zelensky, vice versa, is telling, I need to tell also that I care about civilians in our economy. What you're saying about half a million draft, it's impossible. One soldier needs six Ukrainians to pay taxes to um, support one soldier. So we cannot afford just to have the war economy. We try, but there is no way. I would never sign the degree uh, decree when the women would be called because it was largely dis discussed, the project, some of the bills that maybe the women should be drafted, maybe the people who are 25, because now it's just the people who are 27 are drafted. So it, it, it's interesting to see that he actually tried to explain why Ukraine cannot be moved fully into, you know, fully war mobilized society in order to maintain this kind of normality and why Ukraine, you know, everything else beyond the, the fight also should be uh, working and how they are trying to balance with that. And Mark, looking from the point of view of the Kremlin, we saw Vladimir Putin yesterday saying he's ready to negotiate with Western leaders. This is the first indication that he is happy to talk, but will not give up what was theirs. Um, talking about the, the land, the, the, the ground that Russia has claimed both in the last couple of years, but also in 2014. Um, Vladimir Putin must sense the difficulty that Ukraine finds itself in, not least in terms of the fact that the counteroffensive um, hasn't happened, but also this blockage of getting money through from the US and, and Europe, but also looking ahead to 2024, when there is a possibility that Donald Trump and the victory for Trump in the United States could have a significant impact in Ukraine's ability to repel Russia. Yes, I mean, for the moment, we can't really take uh, Putin's claims about a willingness to negotiate at all at face value. A, because he precisely he's saying he's willing to negotiate with the West. His view is essentially that, that Kiev is, is nothing more than the simple puppet of NATO, clearly doesn't correspond to reality. But secondly, his idea of negotiations is more or less he's willing to talk about how Ukraine surrenders. There is no meaningful willingness to talk. And I think, yes, at the moment, he must be feeling relatively confident. As, as we've said, the Ukrainian counteroffensive hasn't been that successful. The Russian economy seems to be looking in pretty good shape despite sanctions and so forth. However, we also have to recognize that everything is not rosy. To a degree, he is gambling that he can make some kind of dramatic successes in, in the coming year. If you look at, the, for example, the Russian budget, not the most exciting topic, it's allocated about a third of all spending to the war this year. But on the other hand, if you look at the budget assumptions, it's assumed that by 2025, it can actually dramatically reduce them. So in other words, you know, it, it is hoping that it can do something now. So from Putin's point of view, yes, he may be fairly confident, but unless he's totally misled by his own people, he must be aware that there are also a whole variety of pressures building up in Russia as well. And in some ways, the longer this goes on, Actually, Russia's position may well get weaker, not stronger. Mark Galliotti and Natalia Gomenyuk, thank you so much for joining us on Monocle Radio. Still to come on today's programme. There's little traffic, air traffic over there in Lapland area. There's a vast amount of space and land. Indeed so. So NATO forces is a great place for them to take their fighters to and exercise. Marcus Hippie, formerly of this parish, uh, tells us how Finland taps into the soft power of Santa. Stay with us on The Globalist. 
UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. And 24 here in London. Let's have a look at today's newspapers. I'm delighted to say that joining me in the studio is Paul Rhodes, Deputy Publishing Editor of Newsweek. Good morning, Paul. Good morning, Emma. Uh, right, let's have a look straight away. Let's dive straight into the uh, in, into the papers. The Financial Times um, is leading, actually, with this uh, response from the Indian Prime Minister about, about the, the sort of continuing row between India and US about some claims of assassinations. Yes, um, um, they are teasing their big interview with uh, Narendra Modi, who has spoken um, and said that he will look into allegations of an Indian assassination plot in the U.S. Um, he, it's obviously clear he's in looking to downplay a, a diplomatic impact of this U.S. indictment la- that was released last month that claimed an Indian official attempted to murder a Sikh separatist on U.S. soil. And, of course, this comes after the murder of a Sikh leader, um, Hardeep Singh Nijar, in Canada, which um, created a, a big row there after the Canadian prime minister said there were credible allegations of a potential link between Indian agents and the killing. But obviously it's a lot harder to pick a fight with the United States than it is with uh, Canada. So Modi's trying to downplay um, what is happening and his promise that he will look into it and assured um, FT readers that um, our commitment is to the rule of law. Um, it's quite a, a sort of muted and subdued response, isn't it? I mean, it is one that you would imagine that the, the political spokespeople training in the background have said, don't say anything other than this. He says, if someone gives us any information, we'll look into it. If a citizen of ours have done anything good or bad, we are ready to look into it. Our commitment is to the rule of law. One would have hoped that, there, I don't know, whether there'd been some sort of commitment to international relations as well. I think I think there is an acceptance, isn't it, that India is, and this is a quote from Modi, deeply concerned about the activities of certain extremist groups based overseas. But what does that suggest about how much Modi is trying to downplay all this by the fact that his answers are what in certain parishes would be described as vanilla? Yes, well, he's he's facing re-election next year and he's running on his very nationalist platform. So um, these comments will probably play very well at home for him. And, uh, you know, India is, as well as is into multilateralism. They've um, copped a lot of um, heat from the West for buying discounted Russian oil during the conflict um, that's ongoing with Ukraine. But um, is obviously trying to maintain ties with the U.S., um, Biden, Joe Biden, the U.S. president, and Modi have met twice this year, once in Washington and again in New Delhi at the G20s, um, discussing everything from cooperation on defense and high tech. So they're trying to build bridges, but um, they, they're, I guess India's trying to play both sides of this game. Let's move to an article in The Times um, about what's happening in Italy. And this astonishing 
shift in demographics, the fact that in 1971, for every child aged six or under, um, there was one person who was 65 or over. So you had a sort of real balance across the generations. And that has just been you know, just devastated, hasn't it? That we now have a huge number of people over 65 and a falling birth rate in Italy. It's it's a very low birth rate in Italy. At 1.22 children um, um, per woman, that is one of the lowest in Europe. And now, as you said, there are 5.6 Italians aged over 65 compared to every child aged six and under in Italy. So this um, its low birth rate is starting to have a falling um, population rate in Italy, and it's uh, struggling with their economy because of it. And um, it's, I mean, it seems to be ongoing, it seems to be an endemic problem, but it's also of, of the economic woes in Italy. Uh, they're trying to encourage people to have more children, but uh, there's been a lot of complaints about um, a, a lack of support for working women and a lack of affordable daycare. And also that um, as many as 61.2% of people un, um, live with their parents until they are 35, which is not very conducive to no. baby making. <laughs> that's, not going to, that's not going to make anybody happy, is it? No. And it also adds, I mean, there are two big questions that are being asked here is, is, is A, how do you create more of a conducive environment for people to have children? Obviously, don't live with your mother-in-law, but also the idea of you need economic support, you need social support. But also, this has brought the whole migration issue into play as well, hasn't it? Yes. Um, um, the, the attitude to um, migration, especially with the right-wing um, party-led um, government led by George Maloney, is is not really behind immigration, and they are behind kind of you know having more children. And this was backed by um, Father Eleven Elon Musk, um, who addressed a convention held by Maloney's Brother of Italy party and said, "We can't depend on other countries for." It. Immigration. We we have to maintain the reasonable cultural identity of countries, or they simply won't be those countries. Finally, this is a, a bittersweet story, isn't it? That's that's done the rounds about a, um, an elderly French couple who sold an African mask to um, an antique dealer, who claimed he didn't know how much it was worth. They claimed that they had the wool pulled over their eyes because that antique dealer went and then put it into auction and it was sold for, I think it was four and four, at least four million euros. Yes. They sued, saying, hang on, we should have known about this. And then the court said, but you didn't do your homework and you didn't check. So as a result, that 4.2 million euros goes to the antique dealer. Yes, it is quite an extraordinary um, story about this mask. Um, it's, a, it's a 19th century mask from a secret society of the Fang people of Gabon and one auction house official in France said it is more rare than a Leonardo da Vinci painting. And uh, yeah, the, the couple filed this um, injunction um, claiming it was an authentication error, but the court threw out their claim um, for saying they failed to have it um, valued properly before selling and accused the couple of inexcusable negligence and frivolity, which seems quite hard. Seems very French. <laughs> very French, <laughs> indeed. But it, apparently the dealer had offered to pay 300000 um, to the couple, um, which was the auction starting price, but the couple's children said no. 
You want to go for the whole hog and go to court. They did, and they, now they've lost. Um, the, the lawyer for the couple says they are dumbstruck and are considering an appeal. After the finding of a Botticelli, I think, in a, in a barn a couple of weeks ago and this mask off in a loft, I think everybody around Christmas will be going to have a look at what they're hiding in boxes. Paul Rhodes, thank you so much for joining us on Monocle Radio. The time here in London is 7.31. A quick look now at the headlines. France's parliament has passed legislation tightening the country's immigration laws. The amended bill was backed not only by President Macron's Renaissance Party, but also by the far-right national rally as well. The new laws will make it more difficult for migrants to bring family members to France and will delay access to welfare benefits. Experts in Iceland say a volcanic explosion not far from the capital Reykjavik has been spewing out more lava than recent eruptions on the peninsula. It erupted on Monday night and has created a fissure of almost two and a half miles long. Iceland's foreign minister has not ruled out the possibility of international flights being affected. And a group of South Korean students is suing the country's government after its national admissions exam ended 90 seconds early. The country's infamous college admission test, known as Soo-Nyung, is an eight-hour marathon which determines university placements and jobs. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned. Now, in the last few hours, Colorado's Supreme Court has ruled that Donald Trump cannot run for president next year in the state. The court cited a clause in the US Constitution known as the 14th Amendment, saying Mr Trump had engaged in insurrection during the US Capitol riot nearly three years ago, thereby making him ineligible to run for office. Well, Chris Lord is Monocle's US editor. I'm delighted to say he joins me in the studio. Very good morning to you, Chris. Uh, good morning, Emma. Um, so what happened uh, in Colorado? So as you just laid out there, the 14th Amendment to the Constitution is a actually a Civil War, American Civil War era uh, amendment to, to the legal document that sort of underpins American law. And what that states is that anybody who's engaged or incited insurrection or rebellion against the state is unfit for executive office. Now, that last bit is a little bit vague, and we'll come to that in a moment. But essentially what Colorado's uh, highest legal court has ruled overnight is that because of the events on January 6th, 2021, Trump on social media rallying in Washington in the hours before those shocking scenes that we all remember when, you know, hordes of his supporters stormed the Capitol building in D.C., um, that makes him ineligible for office because essentially he has fought against the state. Now, the trouble is that that's, amendment to the Constitution was drawn up to stop people who fought for the Confederacy during the Civil War from holding office, um, who had seceded, if you will. Um, so essentially, when it says executive office, what exactly does that mean? Does that, does that disbar you from the presidency? Nevertheless, the Supreme Court in Colorado says... It, it does. That stops him from being on the ballot in the primaries, which is the process that chooses the next leader of the Republican Party to go into that election uh, that we see in November. And I think what it sets up now, there's obviously going to be an appeal. Trump's lawyers are already on, on the move. Uh, that sets up a situation where the Supreme Court in D.C., the overall uh, uh, sort of uh, Supreme Court, will decide where this lands. And this is not expected to, to go all the way and succeed in the Supreme Court, is it? Or is it because this this constitutional, the 14th Amendment, has been applied in various other states and hasn't worked, has it? So this is now, yes, so we've seen uh, attempts like this in Michigan, Minnesota and New Hampshire, all of which have been so far largely thrown out. Doesn't mean that they're completely dead in the weeds, but they have so far been thrown out. However, 
to your point, when this gets to the Supreme Court, which it inevitably will, that is a Supreme Court that has been stuffed with conservatives slowly over the years, uh, certainly during the Trump presidency and and previously. So um, there is a there is a Supreme Court there that's going to be deeply tested because if they rule in Trump's favour, unfortunately, that's going to give the impression that they uh, that they are in his pocket. Uh, if they rule against this. Then that's going, and therefore, sorry, rule in favour of this rather. That is really going to stir that base of Donald Trump. Um, I think there is one other factor at work here that we can't deny is that when we get to March, the next stage of the federal investigation that Special Counsel Jack Smith is leading uh, into Trump's event, uh, Trump's actions around January sixth, twenty twenty one, that is going to get into its next stage. So you're going to have probably by the time this bubbles its way through to the Supreme Court, you're then going to have the federal investigation happening at the same time into those events. And I wonder whether, if you think of the optics of that, it's going to be very difficult for the Supreme Court not to be aware of what's happening at the federal level in terms of that investigation. It also plays right into the heart of the problems that is that are facing, that the United States faces at the moment in terms of challenges to the way that democracy works. That if you suddenly have the Constitution being challenged in the Supreme Court, those on Donald Trump's side will inevitably be saying, well, the Constitution is skewed. Right. So you, exactly that. And also, I think that any time the Constitution is rolled out, you're putting quite a lot of stress on the judicial system and on the structures that Uh, American democracy rests upon. You're going back to the founding document, essentially, to decide whether or not something stands. And of course, this is a document several hundred years old, written in archaic language, um, and is liable for for interpretation by various different people. To your point, I think also as well, you're going to, in in an incredibly partisan, febrile atmosphere in America right now, you're then having a uh, a, a judgment by courts and not by voters about whether somebody is eligible for office and whether somebody should be president or not. Um, and that is a very dangerous ground to be on at a moment when we have seen attacks on Capitol buildings. We, we know exactly what the, court, the, the, the core of this argument is, is that people felt empowered and angry enough to go and storm uh, the seat of government in, the, in Washington, D.C. to make their, their feelings known. I think America... Its entire system is going through a stress test, not only um, with the case that we're talking about here, but all the cases against Donald Trump right now. So many of them gravitate around exactly where the rule of law lies, how it's applied, uh, and, and if you will, whether whether some of those original founding uh, sort of structures um, really stand the test of time when we get into a, an age of social media and an age of, uh, you know, different ideas about what insurrection means. And it, it sort of begs the, the, the question as to how do the Democrats respond to this as well, given the fact that they will wish to play the, the side of, well, this is the law, this, these are judges who are obviously testing testing the Constitution. Mm. But it's very difficult for them to do anything other than to, to, to sort of Talk about how Donald Trump appears to be breaking laws left, right and centre. So Joe Biden's people have been very quiet so far on this Colorado ruling. And I think they are conscious of, uh, you know, as I say, this fear that that inevitably this looks like ineligibility or, or, or the courts deciding on a president rather than the people. And so they're very cautious to go too far on this. However, we have to remember, of course, that, you know, Colorado's Supreme Court was picked entirely by democratic governors. So there is also partisan work going on here as well. Let's not forget as much as it is judiciary and as much as there is still going to be that view that essentially Democrats decided to get rid of Trump. I think that argument is becoming so 
strong amongst American people. This idea that uh, the judiciary, the the DOJ, uh, the Department of Justice, is now uh, becoming increasingly politicized. And when you go around America, as I do from week to week, that is something you do hear a lot. A fear that a there is. Attempt, constant attempts at retribution against Donald Trump and conversely him trying to get his own back on, on Joe Biden, but that these systems and structures of, of government are increasingly being politicised and that does make a lot of Americans feel very nervous. Um, but I think also, you know, let's let's not forget, I, I think there is one other element that we can't forget here is I, I think there's a great deal of frustration uh, in America with a feeling that, you know, on both parties, that they do not have a candidate who's really actually feeling very up to the job, whether they're Democrats or Republicans, wherever you sit on that. So many Democrats are are completely frustrated with Joe Biden, do not want him on the ballot at all. Similarly, many on the right feel that probably Donald Trump, however, maybe there were some good elements to his presidency, probably isn't quite the man for the job right now when... Uh, America faces as many, many challenges as it does, and especially those coming down the track. I think that deep frustration, especially, which we're going to see into 2024, all these cases slowly unfolding, um, it's going to create so much uh, weariness, I think, in the, amongst the American people. And this in Colorado, I think, also heightens that. There is a feeling of, is this as good as it gets? Chris Lord, thank you so much, as ever, for joining us on The Globalist. You're with Monocle Radio. Now, all this week on The Globalist, we're looking into the implications of ageing populations. As we heard in our paper review a little bit earlier on, Italy is facing a crisis. And also, let's turn to Japan, because this year the country's population shrank for the 12th year in a row. At the same time, Japan has been making headlines for its new military policies, including the increase of its annual defence spending. So how will one issue impact the other? Well, Robert D. Eldridge is a professor whose most recent book focused on the problems facing Japan's military force. And Monocle's Sophie Monaghan-Coombs spoke to Robert and began by asking him how serious Japan's super-aging society is for its military. Traditionally, I think when, you know, students look at declining populations, they'll look at the impact on, on the economy or on, you know, different regions of the country. Or here in Japan, another aspect of looking at the declining a younger population is the impact on student numbers at universities. And those are all important areas, I think. But several years ago, about 10 years ago, I was looking at the impact of the declining population, particularly those of essentially military age, and how that would impact the Japanese military, which is called the Japan Self-Defense Forces, and their ability to recruit people to join the military. The SDF was created, established in 1954. It had a couple of predecessors before that, but the current incarnation of its military was in 1954, so almost 70 years ago. And historically, it's had a very difficult time reaching its its authorized strength currently it's authorized to have 247,000 soldiers uh and you know sailors and and air air personnel but 
for most of its history, it's had a very difficult time reaching anywhere near its authorized strength, usually falling about maybe 80% when recruiting. And, and then the numbers would drop off, uh, you know, sometime after that. Um, and when the economy is strong, uh, fewer and fewer people would want to go into the military. They'd want to go into the private sector. And overall, the Japanese economy is facing a, you know, a, a lack of workers. So that means the, you know, the employment market is good for those that are seeking employment. So it's going to make it even tougher, the Japanese military to recruit. Plus, you have a much smaller pool that you're drawing from. Uh, so all of these factors, I think, will make it difficult for the Japanese military to recruit, you know, kind of like the, the best of that generation. And when lots of people think about Japan, they might quite quickly think of technology and how and Japan's sort of history of being very kind of technologically advanced. Um, how might technology help solve this issue? And do you think there's quite a lot of um, attention and effort going into using technology to help with these kinds of problems? I think the, the first issue was that the Japanese Ministry of Defense was, I think, late in recognizing that it would be having you know, this, this, this twin challenge of recruitment and uh, the declining population. So I think the recognition that it had was belated. It alluded to it in its annual white papers, but I don't think the allusions to it had the, you know, the urgency, the sense of urgency that it, that it really needed. So because of that, I think it's belatedly addressed some of the countermeasures that it could take. One of those countermeasures is exactly as you alluded to, the use of technology. And there's a variety of technologies that can be used, obviously. But some of the technologies require the people to operate them. And so with the introduction of technology, it, uh, first of all, you know, requires somebody to operate it. The more challenging that that technology is, the greater the training and education is required. The more that that person is trained, and the, that's obviously going to be increasingly expensive to do that, the more that person is going to be attractive to the private sector. And he or she could be, you know, scouted or recruited by the private sector. So a lot of um, public money goes into the training an education of that individual only to find him or her, you know, being scouted by the, the private sector. Another challenge of simply relying on technology is the purchase of that technology or that equipment will draw from a fairly limited budget that goes towards the military. So obviously technology is part of the solution but I don't think it's the only answer to the the challenges that they have. And what what might some of those other solutions be? And are there any kind of other global examples of countries that are facing similar problems and and are having some success with with finding solutions? Yeah, I, I would think um, 
most countries are facing, you know, variations of that the challenge. With Japan's case, for example, over the years, Japan's been seeking to grow the, the percentage of females in the military. And when it began to seriously look at this issue, at the time, the percentage was about 6% of the military personnel were female. They were hoping to grow that number by twice as much. So in other words, to double it, to match essentially European and uh, North American militaries. The downside, and this needs further study, I, I believe, but initially it seems that in general, and this isn't true of every country, it's not true of every uh, sector of the economy, but generally the more that females are involved in a sector of the economy and the higher they go, you know, rank wise or promotion wise in that sector, generally there's a tendency to, for example, marry late or to have children later. So if the goal is to overcome the, the issue of depopulation and to resolve that with the military, they're promoting an increase in opportunities for females as well as the opportunities for females to get promoted, in the long run, they may be undermining their cause because that could lead to a decline in the overall population. That was Professor Robert D. Eldridge in conversation with Monocle's Sophie Monaghan-Coombs. You're listening to Monocle Radio. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. Let's talk business now with Rachel Puppetzoni, national business reporter and presenter at ABC News, who joins us on the line now from Perth, where it's mid-afternoon. It's about 15.47. And I believe, Rachel, from the position of someone who's sitting where it's six degrees and overcast and raining in London, it's 35 where you are. Yeah, I must admit, I was lying by the pool about two hours ago, Emma, um, in the blaring heat of the uh, midday sun. So it's a pretty hot one today. All right. OK, I'm never talking to you ever again. Uh, but before I do that, tell us what's happening in the business news. Let's go to Japan first. Um, Toshiba has delisted in, 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 a, in a huge sort of a fray of problems. Yeah, it's really at the end of an era. Um, Toshiba uh, has been around or listed uh, on the Tokyo Stock Exchange for 74 years and it's delisted today. It's gone uh, into private ownership and this follows about a decade or so of all sorts of scandals and upheavals and poor performance within the company which was once uh, one of Japan's biggest brands and uh, it even, I guess, holds a bit of a soft spot for me. I was just sort of reminiscing about this little tiny um, handheld radio that I used to take to school when I was in high school. Um, it was clear the direction of my career when I was listening to the news during my 
my lunch break. Um, but it is a company that uh, has now gone into private ownership. Uh, the last day of trading yesterday saw shares close down slightly. Uh, the chief executive, Taro Shimada, will stay on in his role with Toshiba. And it is a company that is uh, very much central to Japan's national security as well. You know, as I said, it's a manufacturer of technology, um, but also um, various chips, nuclear defense equipment. Uh, so after uh, a decade of sort of poor performance and, and scandals within the company, it's now going into private ownership. The hope is that uh, it will be able to improve its margins uh, and stick around, I guess, for another 74 years or so. Well, I mean, what what role will it now play in in Japan, given the fact that I think that its delisting has been seen? I think someone from the from the Tokyo Stock Exchange said that this is an example of what does and does not work in Japan. Yeah, and, and there was a lot of, I guess, international interest in taking over the company and, and this delisting will uh, ensure it stays in Japanese hands. Uh, it's been bought by a conglomerate of, of Japanese companies headed by uh, one firm called Japan Industrial Partners. Uh, it's worth 14 billion US dollars, this takeover. Uh, and I guess it shows um, the, the, the the importance of um, good business practice and, and remaining um above board when it comes to um, the way companies are operated. You know, Japan holds those kinds of things very uh, important uh, and, and highly regarded. And as I said, because it is so involved in the country's nuclear and defence capabilities as well, it'll be interesting to see how that dynamic plays out between government and private ownership uh, in the years ahead. Uh, finally, we've got a minute to talk about Airbnb in Australia. Um, it has been fined for overcharging people. Yeah, so between uh, 2018 and 2021, the corporate watchdog here, the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission, alleges that Airbnb was not very... um, forthcoming uh, in its pricing guidance. Uh, Customers thinking that they were paying Australian dollars uh, for bookings, but in fact there was very, very fine print that had the letters USD to indicate that prices were in US dollars. So, for example, uh, customers thought that they were perhaps paying $500 for a booking, uh, were in fact charged about $700 Australian dollars for that same booking. Uh, So, the uh, court today has ruled that uh, uh, that was in breach of Australia's consumer law. Airbnb has been fined $15 million Australian dollars and will also compensate 63,000 affected customers. Uh, and so that'll probably equate to about 250 Australian dollars for for each compensation. So that'll that'll be probably another 15 million dollars or so in terms of those um, repayments. So 30 million dollars uh, Airbnb is up for uh, after today's ruling. Rachel Puppetsoni, thank you so much for joining us on Monocle Radio. You're listening to The Globalist. Finally, with just a few days until Christmas, let's hear how the big day is celebrated in the most Christmassy of countries, Finland. Marcus Ippi, a voice and a name that we know very well, former executive producer here at Monocle Radio, is now the press councillor for the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of Finland. But he recently came back to Midori House to tell Andrew Muller all about the soft power of Santa and his own experience of a Finnish festive season. Marcus, first of all, you're back. 
I know, it's, it's been a few months, which is way too long. Hello, Andrew, it's, it's lovely to be back here. Uh, yeah, last year, we did a whole thing on the foreign desk about Finland, the nation you now represent. We had, we had Santa Claus, an ambassador, mm-hmm. one of your former presidents, and, and this time we've got you, which is literally like having an ambassador, a former president, and Santa Claus all in one. So I wasn't quite sure what to expect when I was invited to return to Monocle Radio, and I thought I would have my own special edition of the foreign desk, but that's not the case. <laughs> And I wonder why. No, you've you've been shoehorned into a few minutes on The Globalist instead. But we did want to talk about Finland at Christmas, uh, specifically the merits of going to Finland at Christmas. Now, it is in many respects a daunting undertaking because Finland circa Christmas time is, not to put too fine a point on it, bloody freezing. Uh, But you have recently been to quite close to where Santa Claus lives. That's true. I went to Rovaniemi on, on a press trip. I was all organising a few British journalists to go and see what Lapland has got to offer. And it was a very, very interesting trip. Minus 23 degrees when we arrived over there, for example. <laughs> not, so You are not selling it so, so far. I mean, actually, it's, it's dry cold. And people who know <laughs> what that means know that it's not as bad as you may think if we just wear enough clothes. So it was a very interesting visit to Rovaniemi. First of all, we flew Finnair to Helsinki, then continued on a domestic flight to Lapland, to Rovaniemi, as I said. And I have to say, I've never been on that international domestic flight in my life. I feel like I, I feel like I was the only Finn on board. <laughs> we had our French people, British people, American people, Italians, some Dutch over there, some German was spoken as well. And it's 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 a very interesting example of this transition Lapland is going through at the moment. After the slightly depressing pandemic years, the tourism industry is booming over there, and some some figures are suggesting that this year we would see a fifteen percent increase in the number of foreign travellers heading to Rovaniemi, for example, which is obviously great news for the region. Is it people just going to meet Santa and all his elves? Well, you get loads of wintry nature over there as well, so obviously you can do skiing and, and ice skating and just enjoying the snow. There's some saunas over there as well, which obviously is something that is still getting a lot of attention when it comes to brand Finland and how Finland is being seen internationally. But talking about foreigners going to Rovaniemi. I think a very interesting aspect I learned over there about what's happening in the city is also that they have... Rovaniemi Airport is a, is a shared airport between the military and between the, mm. the civil flight industry. And now, thanks to Finland's NATO membership, the mayor of Rovaniemi said to us that the city will have to have a think about the future because they are getting so many exercises over there. There's a lot of, there's little traffic, air traffic over there in Lapland area. There's a vast amount of space and land. Indeed so. So NATO forces, it's a great place for them to take their fighters to and exercise. Now the question is, how do you combine that Christmassy feeling, Christmas music and, and, and elves and Santa Claus and... F-18 hornets flying over you regularly. <laughs> so that's something Rovaniemi is thinking about at the moment. I, I, I mean, I, I foresee a future of, of postage stamps with... F-18s towed by reindeer, perhaps, with, mm, with, with red noses. I like. That. I think we would need Wing Creative to brand this whole thing and make it work in a very clever way. You can go upstairs and pitch that as soon as you are done here. But on that subject, there is also some sort of tourism-related link-up now between uh, Rovaniemi and Tromso. Oh, very good that you pointed that out. That's a, that's a brand new thing that happened. A great example of Nordic collaboration now. So... 
Finland and Norway have been slightly competing when it comes to attracting foreigners to go and see our wonderful countries. Obviously, Norway has fjords. Sadly, Finland is quite a flat country, so we don't mm-hmm. have anything like that. But we have Santa. So the obvious solution is bringing those two together by launching a direct flight connection between Rovaniemi and Tromsø in northern Norway. So now it's very easy for you to go and see the fjords and then take a very short flight to Lapland. And you get to say hello to Santa Claus as well. So so for people who, and there must be a lot of those people, who have dreamt of seeing a fjord and Santa Claus in one trip... I mean, th- th- literally all their Christmases have come at once. Have you never thought about that? Uh, not until right now, Marcus, mm-hmm. but na- now I'm thinking about it extremely earnestly indeed. Um, we did also want just to talk to you more broadly about festive themes. We have in recent years, not least your own influence, Marcus, kind of made Finland Monocle Radio's Christmas theme. But I, I did want to ask you, what-, what do you personally do at Christmas, apart from obviously treat perhaps yourself and or your loved ones to a new bucket? Mm. <laughs> oh, buckets never go way out of fashion. Um, I, I I have these traditions I've been talking about on, on the radio before as well, but just to recap, um, this year I go to Finland a bit earlier than usual, so I go to see my family on the 23rd already, and I know from experience that right before Christmas there is this madness of getting everything ready for Christmas, tensions are running high. I mean, where wouldn't they? This is We're not perfect in Finland either. Then it's, well, then what, it's, what does it look like when tensions <laughs> run high between Finns? Does, does somebody say more than five consecutive words? No, or they speak a bit less and then <laughs> feels a bit tense and then someone goes to sauna. Um, but anyway, the following day at midday, there's a declaration of, of Christmas peace in Turku, which is Finland's former capital, mm-hmm. which means that you have to behave in Christmas. It's kind of like universally understood that people have to behave and it's even worse committing a crime or disturbing others during Christmas time. Marcus Hippie, thank you very much for returning. Marcus Hippie and his Finnish Christmas tensions are talking to Andrew Muller. That's all we have time for today's programme. Many thanks to all my guests and to the producers Sophie Monaghan-Coombs and Laura Kramer. Our researcher was Neoma Ekwe and our studio manager was Tamsin Howard. For now, from me, Emma Nelson, goodbye. Thank you very much for listening. <laughs>